last weekend, I was getting together with some family, and my older cousin brought his uh, daughter, who's one. Her name is Callie, and I think we have a picture of her. That's Callie, and as you can see, she's got a large pixie stick like this, and she is obsessed with it. Like, she did not put this thing down the entire time we were there. She was loving this pixie stick. She carried it with her wherever she went. She was showing it to people, every single person, but then if you, like, went to grab it, she, like, pulled away, like, no, this is mine. She was waving it around, just, like, obsessed with this pixie stick. She's just clinging tight to it. But it wasn't for maybe reasons that you would think. See, she's actually never had a pixie stick before. She had no clue that of the sugary goodness that was on the inside of that pixie stick. She was just concerned with the thing that was hollow and empty and, and plastic that had really no value. She didn't know of the sugary goodness that was just sitting there at her fingertips. She was obsessed with the plastic tube, so much so that if you tried to take it from her, she would like even start crying. That's how obsessed with it she was. Now, now here's why I tell you that. It's because we are a lot like Callie. You see, we like to cling to the thing that has no value eternally while they're just at our fingertips that's been given freely to us is immeasurable joy in God. And so that's what I want to talk about tonight. We're going to be in Judges chapter 10, so you can get your Bibles out if you have those or Bible apps. We're going to be reading verses 6 through 18. So Judges 10, 6 through 18. Does anybody want this pixie stick? Anyone want one? There you go. All right. Um, so we'll be in Judges 10, verses 6 through 18. Um, and before we get into the passage, I want to lay down a biblical principle that we really need to understand and grasp before we study this passage. And the, the principle is that God hates idolatry. God hates the worship of all these false gods. We can see it in the very beginning when he's, uh, when he's laying out the Ten Commandments for the Israelites. You know, the things that we probably had to remember when you were kids, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not kill, all those things. And we think that, you know, the thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not kill would probably be in the very beginning. But the very first two commands in Exodus 20 centered around the idea of idolatry. It says that you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not craft anything in the likeness that is of the image of heaven above or the earth beneath. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. I am the Lord your God, and I am a jealous God. And so he lays it down at the very beginning, and, and the reason is, is idol worship and worship of all these false gods was so prevalent of the time. In ancient times, they would worship all these gods, all these false gods, and it took many diff different forms, but a lot of times, these people would craft some sort of statue in the image of some sort of uh, creature or even a man or a woman sometimes, and then they would bow down and worship these gods. And that's why in Romans 1, uh, 22 through 23, it says that claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creepy things. So they would worship these gods in hopes of, of power and security and pleasure and comfort. Maybe if I will just serve this God, she will bless my crops. Maybe if I serve this God, he will give me children and a family. Maybe if I cry out to this God, she will help us win the battle. 
See, they believed and they trusted and they put their hopes in these gods. And so then in turn, they worshiped them. And the worship took many different forms. They would, they would pray, chant, sing songs to them. They would uh, offer money and produce and offer animal sacrifices to them. They would dance and perform sexual acts to please them. Sometimes they would even cut themselves and let blood just flow down, hoping to find pity in the eyes of their gods, hoping to get a response from their gods. And in extreme circumstances, they would even murder their own children, offering them to these gods, hoping to please these gods. They, were, uh, they shaped their entire lives around worshiping these false idols, these false gods, and God condemns the worship of them. And there's a saying that's repeated all throughout Scripture. It's, it's multiple times. It's in Psalms a couple times, Jeremiah, Isaiah, and even in the New Testament. And the gist of it goes like this. It says that mankind, it forged gods out of gold and silver. But these gods, they have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have hands, but they cannot feel. In their mouths is no breath and no sound. And those that worship them and trust them become like them. They are powerless and they are lifeless. See, that, that's repeated all throughout Scripture. And God, for his people, the Israelites, he commands them to be different from the world around them, to not worship these gods. He says, I have set you apart. You are a holy nation to me. Don't give in to this idol worship. But Israel, what we're going to see, they don't listen. And so that's where we pick up in verse 6. We're in the book of Judges again, chapter 10. And starting with verse 6, it says, The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Asherah and the gods of Syria and the gods of Sidon and the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, the gods of the Philistines, and they forsook the Lord and did not serve them, serve him. So here it says, again, they gave themselves over to these other gods. See, this was Israel's pattern. In fact, this started all from the beginning of their nation's birth. When God was on Mount Sinai committing himself to a covenant relationship with these people, spelling out the terms of the agreement of how he was going to be their God and they were going to be his people, giving them the Ten Commandments, the people of Israel were on the bottom of the mountain. And there on the bottom of the mountain, they threw together this, all their gold and they melted it down and formed it in the shape of a calf or a cow. And they bowed down and worshipped it as the God that saved them from the Egyptians, that pulled them out of Egypt. And this pattern, it goes on in their history. Even as they're on the cusp of the promised land, when, when God's about to give them the land that he promised, Joshua, their leader, he stood before them. And he says, choose today who you're going to serve. Either serve the God of the Egyptians and your ancestors, or serve the God of the culture or gods of the people in the land that you're about to inhabit, or serve the one true Lord. Choose today. And then that's where we get the verse that's in so many people's houses. For me and my household, we will serve the Lord. And the people echo his cry like, yes, we will serve the Lord. We're going we're gonna to forsake these gods. We're going to serve the Lord. But their word, it returns void. 
and they failed to drive out the inhabitants of the promised land, and eventually they got immersed into their culture, and they began to worship the gods of the people in the land, and they forsook the Lord their God who brought them out of Egypt, who brought them from the wilderness, who brought them salvation. And their idolatry is compared to adultery. It's compared to them cheating on God. They were an adulterous people. And it's so easy for us to look back at uh, the Israelites and look down on them and, and distance ourselves and be like, well, that's kind of weird. That, that's not us. Because, I mean, none of you guys, hopefully at least, are not going home in your dorms and having these gold statues that you, like, bow down to and sing to and chant to and, like, offer sacrifices to. So we're like, okay, well, I'm not like them, but, man, we are so much like them. We are so much more like them than we even care to realize. We most certainly worship idols and offer sacrifices up on the altar to them. In his book, Counterfeit Gods, Tim Keller says that idols are the things that we love and trust and obey. And so anything can be an idol, and everything has been an idol. In fact, like, this is our disposition. This is how we were created. We are by nature's, are by nature worshipers. This is how we were created. We were created to be beings that worshiped. And so the question's not, will we worship or if we will worship? The question is, what will we worship? And, and Keller says that our hearts are idol factories. We are cranking out, forging idols of all sorts of things in our lives. We consistently elevate things, even good things, in our lives to meet the deep desires of our hearts, and we elevate them to the place of God. Kyle Eidelman, in his book, Gods at War, he structures the conversation by saying, or by putting in the terms of temples. So the broad category would be like the temple of pleasure, and then you go into the temple of pleasure and you worship a God in that temple. And I think that this uh, structuring is helpful. And so I've broken it down to four major temples for us. Um, the four temples, they're the broad. These, this isn't the only way that you can slice it. There's probably other ways you could put it or other categories you could throw out. But these were, were helpful for me. The temple of power or control. The, the temple of security. The temple of pleasure or comfort the temple of acceptance or of love. And so we might not have these little figures that we worship, but we most definitely go into these temples daily and offer up sacrifices and worship at the altars that are built in these temples. And so I want to give us a few examples to help us grasp the concept. Obviously, we can't hit everything, but I think these examples will hopefully give us an understanding. See, some of us, we worship the God of success, in the temple of power and control. We spend an unbelievable amount of time and energy, hours upon hours upon hours, sacrificing relationships with friends, and one day, if you continue on, sacrificing your families all in the name of making good grades or being successful and rising to the top of the corporate ladder to ultimately achieve success and power. Some of us, we, you worship the God of anxiety, in the temple of security. As you lay restlessly awake at night with your mind and your heart spiraling and spiraling and spiraling deeper and deeper, overcome with fear for what tomorrow brings. Some worship the God of alcohol in the temple of pleasure and comfort. 
And after we spend weekend after weekend after weekend drowning ourselves in temporary uh, satisfaction, living in a drunken fog, all in the name of living for today. Do we not worship the God of laziness in the temple of pleasure and comfort as we binge hours and hours and hours on, the, uh, on TV shows neglecting the things that need to be done? Do we not worship the God of relationships in the temple of acceptance and love as we pursue relationships that we know are not good for us, as we stay in relationships that we know are not good for us, and in them we sacrifice our own sexual morality, all that we might feel adequate and loved? Do we not worship the God of social media in the temple of acceptance and love as we scroll and scroll and scroll on social media looking at picture after picture after picture of people who are prettier and funnier or who are having better life experiences than us and all the while our hearts are filled with jealousy and filled with inadequacy in comparison to these people. And some of these, these idols can be worshipped in many different temples. The, the God of alcohol or the God of entertainment, maybe it's not because of pleasure, maybe it's out of security. That you were so fearful about what's going on or what will happen, you're so stressed out, and so entertainment or alcohol, that's your escape. And so it's not for pleasure, it's for an escape because you are so caught up in worshiping in the temple of security. Or maybe it's just to fit in socially, and so you're worshiping in the temple of acceptance. Or maybe you're not worshiping the God of success in the, in the temple of power. Maybe you're worshiping in the temple of security because you're fighting for success so that you can control and protect your life. Or maybe success is, is not to protect your life. Maybe it's a status. And so you're worshiping in the temple of acceptance and you want people to see you in a certain way. Or maybe it's even just to please your parents. See, if it's not any of these things, I got to tell you, it's something. Because we are created to worship, and our hearts are idol factories. We kneel at the altar of idols every single day. We make sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice to these false gods. And, and hear me say this, not all of these things are bad things. Not all of these gods are bad in and of themselves. It's not bad to just chill and watch a TV show. It's not bad to enjoy friendships. In fact, God's going to command you to be in community. It's not bad to have a relationship. The problem comes when we elevate good things to God things. It comes when we, we take these good and gracious gifts from God and turn the worship from the giver to the gift. So here, here's an example. Marriage is a good thing. I love my marriage to Sarah. It's a great thing. I love Sarah with my entire heart. But with any good gift from God, there's a temptation to take that good gift and elevate it to the place of God. And it gets very dangerous when we do this. Why? Because she can't satisfy the deepest desires of my heart. She cannot complete me. In fact, when we try to make God, make created things gods and put the weight of God on them, they crumble underneath it because no created thing can sustain that kind of weight. So is marriage wrong? No, absolutely not. In fact, my marriage to Sarah is the most precious gift that God has given me in this life. And it's my role to enjoy that gift 
to enjoy Sarah and allow that to then stir my heart to worship the giver of the gift, my God. But the problem comes when I elevate the gift above the giver because then it's dangerous and it's destructive for myself and for those around me. And hear me say this, this is a problem for each and every one of us. Whether you are a seasoned believer who's been work, walking with the Lord for years, or whether you just are kind of checking out the God thing, you don't really know how you feel about it. This is the problem for each and every one of us. We all have the tendency towards idolatry. And so what I want to do is uh, I want to give us some, some things that can help us identify the idols in our hearts. Both Eidelman and Keller in their books, they have several questions that help you identify gods. And so I've kind of compiled them for us. And if you can't think of any idols that are com competing for your heart, I really want to encourage you to really think through this list because we always have things that are competing for that spot of God in our hearts. So I'm going to kind of move through these. Feel free, you can take a picture of them if I go too fast. Um, but I really think these are helpful. Helpful things to ask ourselves. What disappoints you? Because a, a disproportionate uh, amount of disappointment, it will reveal what your hope and your longing is in. What do you complain about the most? Maybe you need to ask your friends this one, which you complain about the most. They'll tell you real quick. Where do you make your financial sacrifices? Because the Bible teaches us that where our treasure is, our heart is also. So where's your money go? What worries you and stresses you out? Where's your sanctuary? When things get difficult and you get times of stress and duress, Where's the place that you run to and go to for comfort? Where do you find your most extreme emotions? Like, what is the thing that makes you happier than anything else in the world? Or the thing that just infuriates you just an unreal amount? Or makes you more sad than anything else? What are your dreams, your aspirations? Where do you find your mind going to when you're daydreaming and just sitting around? Whose word do you live by? Whose words do you die by? Who's the person that at one comment can leave you just walking away on cloud nine or at one comment leave you just in a funk all day? What do you fear the most? Like if you were to lose this thing, it would just completely just feel like life isn't worth going on. The answers to these questions will oftentimes show you where the idols are in your heart. The things that you are clinging to in your heart, things that you've elevated to the place of God. And as you answer these questions, you have to ask why. Why do I feel this way? Why does it make me do this? And if you ask why enough, you'll get to the root of it. You'll get to the point, uh, to the root of it. And what you'll find is that these gods that you are worshiping, that just like the gods of the Israelites, just like every other God that man has worshiped other than the one true God, they are all lifeless and powerless. They have eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear. In their hands they cannot feel. And in their mouths there is no breath and there is no voice. They are completely and utterly hollow and powerless. See, here's the deal. We all have an idolatry problem. This is my problem and this is your problem. So the question then, which is answered the next few verses, is what is God's response to this idolatry problem? What is God's response? So continuing... In verse 7 through 9, so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines, 
and into the hands, hand of the Ammonites, and they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. So God gives them over into the hand of the peoples that were in the land. God's response here to their idol worship is discipline. He allows them to be enslaved and oppressed and to be distressed by the neighboring nations. See, they immerse themselves into the culture of these other nations. They worship their gods, and these other nations then enslave them. And this is the pattern all throughout the book of Judges. If you read through it, what you'll find is Israel will give themselves over to the worship of other gods. They'll forsake the one true God, and then God will give them over into the hands of these peoples. He will bring discipline. And so hear me say this, sometimes God will allow in his great sovereignty difficult circumstances into our lives to bring discipline. Now, I want to be very, very clear here. I'm not saying that every single negative thing that happens is God disciplining us. And I think if you hold to that view, it's very dangerous and unbiblical. We see that with Job's friends. If you read the book of Job, you see them ascribing all the bad things happening to some action he's done, and they get rebuked later for it. So the truth is we live in a fallen and a broken world, and, and sometimes we just have to live in the wake of its brokenness, and it's due to no particular sin of our own. However, I think it would be naive of us to think that God doesn't use difficult circumstances to discipline and rebuke us. See, Israel, they forsook their God, and they found themselves in bed with these other nations, with these other gods, and God gave them over to them. There were consequences for their actions. And the same is true for us. When we get in bed with these false gods, there is consequences for our actions. And sometimes it comes in different ways. Sometimes God will use just our circumstances to discipline us. Other times he will completely remove that idol from our lives. He will remove the thing that you've been worshiping. You will lose that job. You will lose the relationship. You will lose the friendship. And it will completely break you. And you'll see and you'll feel like something's missing from your heart because you have been so dependent on the worship of this idol. And the next verses actually show another aspect of God's discipline. And truthfully, it's pretty terrifying. Continuing in verses 10 through 14. It says, and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites and from the Ammonites and from the Philistines? Did the, the Sidonians also, the Amalekites, the Mayanites, the, the oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hand, yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in your time of distress. See, the pattern throughout the book of Judges is that Israel would go and they would serve other gods, forsake the one true God. God would allow them to be oppressed and bring discipline. They would cry out to God for rescue. 
God would hear their cry and he would respond by raising up someone to come and bring salvation for them. And then after that, the people would repent and they would live at peace with God for a short period of time. And then they'd start right back over. And it's less of a cycle and more of a spiral. In fact, if you read the book of Judges, it turns out you're like, oh, this isn't that bad. But it gets worse and worse and worse until you read the final chapters of Judges and you just feel kind of sick. I I mean, don't take my word for it. Go and read it for yourself. It's it's pretty crazy how far they go. But in this situation, they they get into this, this time where they're oppressed and they cry out to God like they've done every other time. And God responds. He says, did I not save you every other time? I saved you from the Egyptians. I saved you from the Philistines, from the Ammonites. I saved you every other time. And so I'm not going to do it this time. I'm not going to save you. In fact, go and I want you to cry out to the gods that you have chosen and see if they'll save you. Cry out to these gods and see if they will deliver you. And this is terrifying. He gave them over to their distress. And sometimes this is the most terrifying thing that God will do. It's not that he's going to take away the God that you've been worshiping. Sometimes the most terrifying thing he will do is he will give you everything you think your heart wants. Just so that you can see that it's empty, that it's lifeless. He says, see if these gods will save you. See if these gods will deliver you. They have eyes, but they don't see you in affliction. They have ears, but they don't hear your cries. They have hands, but they don't feel. And in their hands, they cannot bring deliverance or salvation. And in their mouths, there are no breath and no sound. They are lifeless. They are powerless. Cry out to those gods and see it for yourself. See, the people, they were consistent with their unrepentant hearts. And then finally, they continue to worship these things. And God says, okay, I'm going to give you exactly what you want. And it echoes Romans 1 again in verse 24. It says, therefore, God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. It's the imagery of the prodigal son, right? Where the younger son goes to the father and essentially says, I wish you were dead. Give me my inheritance now. I want to go do my own thing. And the father doesn't step in and say, no, absolutely not. He doesn't rebuke him and stop him from leaving. What's the father do? He gives him his inheritance and lets him go. And sometimes God does this for us. Sometimes God will give us everything we think that we want when we are in this persistent unrepentance just to see that we can drink to the end of the bottle and find that it is empty and hollow and it will not quench our thirst. That he'll give us all the success. He's not going to take away your job. He's going to let you go and rise all the way to as high as you can go in your career just so that you can see that there at the top, it's still not enough. He's going to give you every level of control that a human can possibly have just so you can feel secure. But then you're going to realize that there are things that you absolutely cannot control and that you cannot have peace in your own strength. And how terrifying is it to have everything that you think you wanted just to realize that it will not satisfy you. Just to realize that the God that you've been worshiping 
is lifeless and is powerless. The why behind God's discipline, though, is very important. And we see the why in the next verses, verses 15 through 16, it says, And the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned, do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away their foreign gods and among them and served the Lord, and he became impatient over the misery of Israel. See, they repent, they turn away, they they come back to God, they cry back out to him, and these verses give us clarity on God's tone. See, when I read this, I insert my own tone into it, and this is how it sounds to me when I read the verses previous to the ones we just read. It sounds to me like God's saying, oh, you want to worship these gods? Fine, go, I'm done. I, I am done with you. Go and worship these gods and see if they save you. But that's not what he's saying. That's not the heart here in his tone. It says, it, I don't know if you call that, it says that he grew impatient over the misery of Israel. The picture here is of a loving father disciplining his child that he loves so much. I know several of you have probably heard the whole, this is going to hurt me a lot more, it's going to hurt you. Maybe your parents have said it to you and you're like, whatever, like, you're right, <laughs> it hurts pretty bad. Um, but we kind of get it on some level. I know not too long ago, Annika was at our house and our dog, Maggie, she loves really hard. She really loves a lot and she licks so much and it drives me up the wall. And so when people are there and, and Maggie's just licking them, I'm like, just pop her on the nose. Just tell her no. Like, you don't have to hit her hard, just give her a gentle pop. And, and Maggie kept licking Annika, and I was like, just pop her, just real quick. And she looks at Maggie, and she just kind of, like, barely touched her nose. Like, and almost immediately, she, like, wrapped her up. Oh, my gosh, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to do this. Like, I'm like, you didn't hurt her. And besides, she needs to learn the lesson. She's not going to learn anything from that. But that's the picture here. It's kind of a, it's a silly picture here. But the picture here is God as a loving father saying, I know that this is what's best for you. I'm going to give you over to what you want, but this hurts me to do this because I know this is hurting you. He doesn't want to do this to them, but he knows that this is the only way that they're going to learn, the only way that they're going to listen. Because God's discipline is meant to bring repentance. God's discipline is so that they would learn. See, he could have just wiped them out. He's God. He has that authority, but he doesn't do that. Why? Because he's their loving father. And he cares for them. And what Proverbs 13, 24 says, whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. See, a loving father disciplines his kids because he wants them to learn, to grow, to repent. And Hebrews 12, 7 through 11 says, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but years, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. God's discipline is merciful. He, he had every right to wipe them out, but he doesn't. He extends mercy. His discipline is from a loving father because he cares. He wants us to turn away from these lifeless gods and turn to him and find the abundance of life that's offered to him. Finishing up in verses 17 through 18, it says this. Then the Ammonites were called to arms and they encamped in Gilead. And the people of Israel came together and they encamped at Mitzvah. 
And the people of the leaders of Gilead said to one another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be the head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. So Israel, after they've repented, after they turn back to God, they recognize their need for deliverance. Say, who's going to go and fight for us? Who is going to bring salvation to us? Whoever does that, he's going to be our leader. And God, he responds to their repentance. Like the prodigal, the father of the prodigal son, he embraces his son when he comes home. God welcomes home his wayward children, and he raises up a man named Jephthah to fight for them, to bring salvation for them, to lead them. But this man's imperfect as well. And yes, there's peace for a moment, but then Israel goes right back into the cycle, right back into the spiral, and it gets worse and worse and worse until eventually we find that they're just like the nations around them, and they're sacrificing their own children to these gods. And God says, enough's enough. He comes in, he, he breaks them, he sends them away into exile, but he again still does not wipe them out. He is merciful to them. He preserves a remnant for the, uh, of them because he's full of grace and full of mercy. He recognizes that, uh, that they're in pain but, and they deserve his wrath, but he is merciful to them because he wants to work some incredible salvation for them. And this need for salvation is not just for Israel, it's for the whole world. Because the whole world, mankind, is left in complete despair and hopelessness because of our sins. There's a need for a mighty warrior and a leader to be uh, to rise up and to, to save us. But no mere man can carry that uh, burden. And so for us, we, we look and we say, who's going to fight for us? Who's going to bring salvation for us? Who is going to be our leader? And his name is Jesus. See, Jesus, fully man, fully God, he died on the cross to pay the penalty for the sins of the world. But he did not stay dead. God raised him from the dead on the third day with ultimate victory over sin and death itself with a promise that for those who confess Jesus as Lord and those who believe that God raised him from the dead, that they will be saved. Jesus becomes their salvation and Jesus becomes their leader. And here this Jesus is the way to our heavenly father the one true God, the one true God who's unlike any of our false gods. He has eyes and he sees us in our affliction. He has ears and he hears our cries. He has hands that feel, but not only do they feel, in his mighty hand, he works salvation. And in his mouth is breath and his sound, and at the sound of his word, and at the breath of his life, he takes dead things and makes them alive. That is the one true God. That is his nature. And what is so incredible, that those who worship him and trust him become like him because he takes and molds and shapes their hearts to match his heart. And so those who trust in him, they have eyes to see the brokenness of our fallen world. They have ears to hear the cries of those around them. They become the hands and the feet of Jesus, who's the only one who can work true salvation. And in them is the very breath of God, 
In them, they carry the word of God. And in that word, there's a message of salvation and hope that can bring dead people and make them alive. That is the power and the nature of this one true God. I just want to close by by giving you an opportunity to respond. See, there's there's many places in Scripture that, that has this call to say, okay, who will you serve? Joshua tells the people, choose today who you're going to serve. Elijah, when he's standing before the people of Israel and the prophets of Baal, he says, choose today who you're going to serve. You can either serve the, 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 the God of Baal, God Baal, or you can serve the God of Israel. If Baal is God, serve him. If God is God, serve him. Jesus says you can't worship two masters. You can't worship money and God as well. Choose today who you are going to serve. And so tonight, I hope this is an opportunity for you to choose today, choose tonight, who are you going to serve? Are you going to serve the gods of the culture, the gods of your parents, or are you going to serve the one true God? Unbeliever, those who are not in Christ, know that apart from Jesus, you are dead and hopeless in your sins. You are worshiping gods that cannot bring you salvation. They are empty, they are powerless, and they are lifeless. But if you will just believe in Jesus and believe in who he is and what he did on the cross and that God raised him from the dead, if you'll believe that on an intellectual level, and if you'll believe that on a personal level, knowing that it was done for you, you can be saved. And you can then step into a relationship with the one true God in whom is true peace and true joy. Or a believer, for those who have walked with God, know that we have the tendency still to elevate other things to the place of God in our lives. Know that we have the tendency, just like Israel, to, to go wayward and serve these other gods. And so my hope and my prayer and my challenge for you is to identify the gods in your life. Identify the things that are competing in your heart for the place of God. I know some of you, you come in and you hear this and you study this and you're like, yeah, I know exactly what that God is. Like, you don't have to spell it out. I don't have to run through the questions. I can tell you this God or these gods that I'm worshiping. Others of you, you're like, eh, whatever. Like, it's not registering. And my fear is that you've become like your idols, that you have eyes, but you can't even see them. You have ears, but you are, are deaf to the message of God, that you are lifeless and your heart has been hardened to the sin that's in your life. My hope and my prayer for you is that you would see these gods in your life, that you would run through these questions and, and really be honest and open with yourself that you would identify these gods, and then once you identify them, that you would throw them at the feet of Jesus, that you would break down the altars that you've been worshiping at, that if it's a good thing, that you would reposition it under the authority of Jesus and worship God as the giver of the good gift, that your heart would be set on your one true God.
the God that sees you in your affliction, the God that hears your cries, the God that in his hand is deliverance and salvation, and that in his breath and in his words, there's the power to make dead things alive. My hope and my prayer is that you would trust in that God, that you would believe in that God, that you would worship that God. Thank you.